it, um, it's come to my attention this morning that someone in this room has committed the sin of adultery just this past week. And I don't know if this person knows that I know, but right here in the eyes of God and in front of all of you, I'm going to tell you who it is. It's you. I know you're probably thinking, man, you had me going. I I thought you were serious. But you know what I am? I am. I'm serious. I am. I'm serious. Because the fact that you have not committed the physical act of adultery does not mean you're guiltless here. This is not a commandment any of us has kept. Believing you have kept it reveals, actually, that that you're guilty of the same thing that the scribes and the Pharisees were, of lowering that bar of God's law. They really thought it was that easy. That's hard to imagine, but I think we've all imagined the same, haven't we? We've all imagined that we've kept at least some of the law. Haven't we convinced ourselves of that? Doing okay in some areas, maybe not so well in others. But Jesus knows our hearts, and that's what he's aiming at here in our text this morning. So we're picking up again in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, looking at verses 27 through 30. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you as we always do for your word. We thank you that we can know about you, we can know about ourselves, we can know about those around us because you've revealed it to us in your word. God, I pray that as we, as we search out your word and your will for us this morning, that you would be searching our hearts, that you would be convicting those who may need conviction, that you would be giving comfort to those who are afflicted. God, I pray now that you would, you would cause me to decrease, that you would increase. We pray, Lord, that you would feed us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing in what I'm calling like a mini-series within our series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called Untamed Hearts. And I call it that because that's what Jesus is emphasizing through the rest of chapter 5. He began with the Beatitudes about what his people are to be, right? Remember we said they're to be like him. We're to be like him. And then just in case anyone starts getting too big for his britches and thinking that they're measuring up, he pulls out the measuring stick. It looks different than than they expected it would. They, They thought they'd met some of the requirements, most of them, maybe just some of them. And Jesus is showing them how far short they've fallen and that God doesn't grade on a curve. And even if he did, we'd all still get a zero. He's showing people it's not about this outward stuff. It's about this heart stuff. 
The evil that they do is evil and it will be brought into judgment. But the only reason they do evil stuff to begin with is because they like it. That's the problem. Christ is revealing our hearts to us here, putting them on display. He's revealing that our desires are twisted up and he's alerting us to the danger of it. So even we as Christians have untamed hearts. But we're not without hope. What comes on the heels of of sight of our sin that the Holy Spirit gives us when he gives us a new heart, what comes on the heels of that sight of sin is conviction of that sin. And then a hatred for that sin. And eventually a repentance of that sin, a turning away from it. And that's not just a one-time thing, by the way. Right? Repentance from sin is not a one-and-done deal. That's, you know, it's not just a salvation thing, it's a sanctification thing. That's what this turning from sin stuff is, sanctification. And that process takes a lifetime. So what Jesus is trying to do here is to force people to look on the inside where the change needs to occur. People think they're keeping the seventh commandment because they haven't committed the physical act of adultery. They think they're sexually pure and that God must be pleased with them. Jesus says, not so fast. Not so fast. We said last week, and this is important to remember as, as, as we look at some of these statements, you've heard it said, but I say, Jesus is not upping the ante. Remember we said that? He's not upping the ante. He's not raising the bar. Right? It, it wasn't like your entry fee was here in the Old Testament and now it's up here. That's not what he's doing. He's just showing where the bar has always been. Okay? He's merely revealing where it's always been and it's higher than anybody ever imagined. Because we do that. We imagine it being a lot lower, somewhere within our reach. Somewhere just, just outside of our fingertips. But the holiness of God is so out of reach for us, y'all, that we can't even have it. It's so far out of reach. The only chance that we have of getting it would be literally if someone just gave it to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no man should boast. Remember that? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And you remember the very next verse in verse 10? Paul says, For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're made pure in God's sight by Christ's righteousness imputed to us. We don't have that kind of righteousness. But we are also becoming and being made pure too. Because we're not. Here's the main idea of the sermon this morning. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now I totally ripped that off from John Owen. Okay, famous Puritan theologian. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's, that's just perfect. It's, it's easy to remember and I would suggest that you do. But more importantly, it perfectly sums up what Jesus is saying here in this passage. First, he shows them how high the bar is. Adultery isn't just an act that you commit. It stems from lust, a desire in your heart, which is itself adultery. And then he says, kill it. Cut out your right eye. If your right hand or your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Cut it off. 
It's better than your whole body being thrown into hell. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I've got two points for you this morning. The subtlety of sin and the mortification of sin. For the two of you taking notes, I'll repeat it. The subtlety of sin, the mortification of sin. So first, the subtlety of sin. I was tempted, but I didn't fall. You ever, you ever said that? You tell yourself that? Does it make it better? I mean, let's be real for just a second, though, okay? Resisting temptation is a good thing. It's better to not follow through with those sinful desires. Can't argue with that. But that's not moving from safety to danger or from good to bad. That's just moving from bad to worse. The desire for sin is sin, and that's what Jesus is hitting on here. It's more subtle than you think. It's not enough to say, I didn't go through with it. We have to ask, y'all, why did I want to? Why did I ever want to? The answer is because we have untamed hearts. It's about the heart. The scribes and the Pharisees had reduced God's law in the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, to merely the act of adultery itself. As long as they didn't commit the physical act of adultery, they considered themselves innocent. They Check that one off, right? I'm good. This, never broken that one, God. Might have broken some of your other ones, but this one, we're, we're good. And one out, of ten, one out of ten ain't bad, am I right? Seems silly to say, but it's easy to think. So what they had done is they ignored the spirit of the law, God's intention for it in the first place. And that's what we're all prone to do, lowering the bar so we can view ourselves as righteous or at least pretty good. Might need a little work, not much. I'm better than the next guy. And you know, one place you see this right now in in the church is, is this thing called Revoice. You heard of this? This has popped up on your radar at all? It's a, it was a conference that was held maybe, I don't know, what, three years ago or so? And it's basically a movement within a denomination, a reformed, Bible-believing denomination, that um, it's okay to be a homosexual as long as you are celibate. That's the idea. A man's desire for a man or a woman's desire for a woman is completely fine as long as you don't do the deed. Because that's what's really in view in all of this stuff in the Bible. That's what those passages about homosexuality mean. That's, that's what the Bible really says. Is it? Is that what Jesus is saying here? How many other commandments can we apply this idea to? I was tempted, but I didn't fall. Where else can we identify as being something that the Bible says is sinful, but then claim we are guiltless because we don't act on it? Where else do we do that? Can we do that with with pedophilia? It's okay that a man is sexually attracted to little children. It's totally acceptable. Just don't act on it. Can we do that? You and I see how clearly absurd that is and are repulsed by it, but I hate to break it to you all if you haven't heard. That's a a thing now. Non-offending pedophiles. 
They have a new name for pedophiles because pedophile carries a negative connotation. They're called MAPs now, minor attracted persons. And the argument for using that term instead of the classic term of of pedophile is that there's a difference between attraction and behavior. Attraction is something they can't help. That's the same argument being made by people in the church who identify as homosexual Christians. The attraction is is not the same as behavior. Can't can't help who I'm attracted to. I was born this way. Okay. We're all born sinners, though, aren't we? Lest a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We must be born again, not of the flesh or the will of man, but of the Spirit. And when we are, God reorders our desires. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things are being made new. He gives us an awareness of what sin is and our distaste for it, our distaste for what displeases God grows. We become sorrowful over our sin. We don't justify it. Now let me address something some of you may be thinking right now and you're right to think it. You're absolutely right to think it. You may be thinking, well, how is homosexual lust different than heterosexual lust? It's a terrific question. It's something that we have to be able to talk about and that people get in in the weeds on on this issue. There's been a a term coined, same-sex attraction. It's argued God's okay with with you being attracted to same sex, just don't pull the trigger. right? Because it's okay for someone to be attracted to the opposite sex, just don't pull the trigger, right? Here's the deal. Jesus isn't isolating one from the other here. Sexual impurity is adultery, period. Whether a man looks lustfully on a, on a woman or on another man, it's a violation of the seventh commandment. It's what it is. We can't excuse heterosexual lust as being acceptable and homosexual lust as being evil, but y'all, when we talk about attraction. We're talking about God-given instincts, and everything God gives is good, and he hasn't just given us appetites, he's given us satisfaction for those appetites. He's provided both the appetites and the satisfaction for those appetites. If an unmarried man is attracted to an unmarried woman, he can make her his wife and their sexual appetites can be satisfied, and that honors God. That glorifies God. God has created the appetite and the God-glorifying satisfaction of that appetite. There is no God-glorifying satisfaction for the sexual appetites of homosexuals. Does that mean we don't love them? That's not what that means. But is is it loving for me to, to excuse my neighbor's sin? that could separate him eternally from his maker? So why, why is it that it's wrong in the one sense and right in the other? Well, because it's a disordered desire that runs counter to God's fundamental design, isn't it? It runs counter to his fundamental design for human beings whom he made, male and female, to fit together to be companions with one another that bear fruit in the world. 
And hopefully that resolves some of the tension in your mind. Maybe not, but summing up, okay? Lust is always sinful. Lust is always sinful. Attraction is sometimes sinful. Is it a sin for a young man to be attracted to a young lady and to want to know her name and to to take her out and buy her flowers? No. Why? Because that may lead somewhere good that God honors. Is it a sin for a young man to be attracted to a young man and want to know his name and to take him out and to buy him flowers? Yes. Why? Because that has no possible outcome that is desirable in God's eyes. We can't pretend only actions are sinful and attractions are not. There are disordered attractions that are indicative of our untamed hearts. As disturbing as it is, y'all, I think the, I think the, the pedophile argument makes this most clear. As disturbing as it is, but think about it. Is it a sin for a young man to be attracted to a four-year-old girl? Is the attraction sinful? Never acted on it. He's not on a list anywhere. Is it a dishonoring, wicked thing that that attraction exists? And I don't think it would be hard for us to say, yeah, that's, that's twisted. That's not right. So my question is, if you're struggling with this a little bit, my question for you this morning is, well, then where do you draw the line? The answer is we don't. God does. You have heard it said, but I say. That's how Jesus opens these treatments through the rest of chapter 5. You've probably heard a lot of things. People say a lot of stuff. Here's what I say. Sexual immorality begins in seed form in the heart, and even that is a sin. And even that is proof of a heart that needs to be made clean. The subtlety of sin. If it weren't so subtle, we wouldn't fall for it all the time, would we? And you know, it's good that we think about sin at all. You know, that we hear about this talked about in church. Some. You know, not naming names, but there's plenty of churches in North America never tell you anything about sin. They got big rooms, full of people. It's a good thing we think about sin at all because the popular notion today is that there is no such thing as sin. That there are these undesirable things that humans still do, just pesky habits that we retain from our animal nature that we are gradually evolving out of. And the prescriptions or the proposed solutions to these pesky little habits that we still carry around, are education, adoption, or legislation. With enough knowledge, we can rise above the yucky stuff. Or we may learn that it's really not yucky at all. So we adopt sin as socially acceptable because we know better now. There's nothing wrong with sex before marriage. That's just an old-fashioned, outdated thing that we've, we, we've grown out of. We don't need that anymore. In fact, it's better to have lots of sex with lots of partners before you get married, if you ever get married at all, because then you'll know what you like. And you'll find your perfect, compatible mate. Sexual desire is a desire that belongs to us, after all. 
So it's our prerogative to satisfy that desire however we see fit. That's what the world says. Didn't used to, but that's what the world says. What does God say? So yeah, instead of acknowledging sin as sin and and a warped corruption of what God has designed for us to be, we either learn our way out of it, education, we begin to call it good, adoption, and whatever is left, and there's not much, we try to legislate it out of people. That's the world's solution to a heart problem. Problem is, none of that works. Because there has to be fundamental transformation at the heart level. Our minds and wills must be transformed. Y'all, you realize this is why the cross had to happen. It's just an insignificant piece of jewelry hanging around people's necks. If we are not as wicked as God's word tells us that we are, it matters not a bit. Our hearts are black as night, cold as ice, and we can't find our way out of the fix that we're in. And we're not doing ourselves any favors by playing games of degrees where we just compare ourselves to others and think, well, I'm not all that bad. We're bad enough. We're bad enough that the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, had to take on flesh and come and become one of us in order to do what we just won't. And then die in our place because we just won't. That's why the incarnation matters. What, I mean, what a peculiar thing. You ever try to wrap your mind around that? What a peculiar thing. God being born into his creation, a man. And he had to be a man because he had to die in our place. And he had to obey in our place. And he had to be without sin. So the sacrifice we needed had to be man and he had to be God. Y'all, that's how serious sin is. That's how high the stakes are. It's a matter of life and death. Eternal life and death at that. The sin of adultery is a sin of the heart that must be washed clean by the Savior's blood and mortified by us the rest of our days. We can't afford to excuse it on, on any level. Even the subtle, lustful looks and imaginations had to be bled for. So sin, and specifically the sin of adultery in this passage, is not just an action, it's a matter of the heart. There's something wrong with our hearts that leads us to action. Sinful actions are only ever symptoms of the disease of a sinful heart. We have untamed hearts, and that's where we have to look. We can't excuse the subtle stuff. We have to become alert. We have to become aware to even the subtle stuff. We can't pretend that we're pure because we haven't acted on those impure thoughts. Second point, the mortification of sin. I want to say something, a couple things out of the gate here, so there's no confusion about what follows under this point, okay? First, and hear me loud and clear, sex 
is good. It's not dirty. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's about companionship. It was not good for the man to be alone. And so he gave him one woman. The sacred bond of marriage is designed and God-ordained to be the basis of establishing families and the fulfillment of God-given sexual desires. We talked about that, right? He doesn't just give us the appetites. He gives us satisfaction for those appetites within the bounds of, of of his designs. The perversion and distortion of this holy union that is a blessing is ruinous and it's detrimental. All right, another thing that I want to say is that there's a difference, y'all, hear me on this. There's a difference between an appreciation of beauty and lustful looks. There's a difference there. The form of a female is supposed to be attractive to a male and vice versa. There's a difference between admiring what God has made beautiful and wanting to possess what God has made as though everything beautiful was made merely for your pleasure. It wasn't. It was made for his glory. And so your appreciation of it, your enjoyment of it, better be glorifying to him. Lastly, fun isn't found in self-indulgence. Fun is not found in self-indulgence. That's a lie. That's just a lie that we believe. That the good stuff happens out there on the other side of the fence that God has put around us. No, that's where the danger is, is on the other side of that fence. And it's recognizing it as danger that protects us from it. Believing, again, what God says about it is true. Jesus says hell is where adultery leads you, not fulfillment, not enjoyment. It leads to destruction, not pleasure. So as I begin to talk about the mortification of sin here, don't imagine sex is dirty. Don't lie to yourself, fellas. Don't lie to yourself that that every woman who is not your wife is hideous. No, she's not. She's beautiful. God made her that way. And don't believe the lie that killing sin leaves you with nothing left to enjoy in life. That's not true. What does God say? Now that I've prefaced this point to death already, let's talk about the mortification of sin. Train yourself to hate sin. We said our main idea, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Is that biblical? Yep. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And we say, yeah, but I don't have the power to do that. That's the Holy Spirit who does that. That's fair. How about this? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So it's both, isn't it? Isn't it both? 
Only by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in you. If you don't have the power to be killing sin, you must not have the the Holy Spirit because as far as I can tell from Scripture, if you are born again, the Spirit of God is in you and active and working. Isn't he our helper? Didn't Jesus say that's what he would do? He would send us a helper that would never leave us? And here's a searching question all of us need to have the humility to ask ourselves this morning. I am not exempt here, all right? We're all on the hook here. I'm preaching this to myself too. How do you get the help from the Holy Spirit when you ignore him? Don't you you do that? Just leave him out of it? Go about your way? Try to tackle whatever whatever temptation you have, whatever struggles that you have, just take it on in the flesh, keep failing, falling on your face. Why don't we ask him for help? Mortify the sin. Pluck it out, saw off the hand. Instead, what we do, though, is we, we offer substitutes, don't we? Christians are really good about this. We'll give up anything rather than the thing we need to give up most. You'll you'll, you'll make up for it with more Bible reading. You'll come to church more regularly. Even serve in the church more regularly. Spend longer in your devotion times. Anything but the extreme of plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand. Now what's that mean? Jesus can't really mean literally gouge out my eye and saw off my hand, right? Right, of course not. Because you'd still have one left to do the sinning. (laughs) I can still use my left pretty good to see what I want, to touch what I shouldn't. Here's why Jesus says this. This comes up a lot. The right was significant to them. It was considered most important and indispensable. Couldn't get by without it. So what Jesus is getting at here is no matter the cost, no matter how important it is to you, if it is causing you to sin, get rid of it. Be willing to to rid yourself of it at any cost to you. Remember, he's not on the physical, he's on the heart. So we can't interpret this as merely what you look at and what you touch. Again, I can still touch what I shouldn't or look at what I shouldn't with one eye or with one hand. It's about how valuable you see your right eye how valuable you see your right hand, how you wouldn't be able to, you would not easily be able to give up one of those. But that we should be willing to give up even those to avoid sin because that's how serious sin is. Train yourself to hate sin. How can I come to hate it when I love it so much? That is a good question. If you're asking yourself that question, praise God to be able to come to that place, to be honest and vulnerable with God and be like, God, it hurts to even say it, but I love it. I don't want you to take it away because I can't imagine my life without it. 
If you can come to that place, the Spirit is working you in, in a miraculous way. Believe what God says about it. That's how you come to hate the sin that you love. You know how you can overcome the lustful looks, gentlemen? Online and offline. What does God say about her? The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, Proverbs 5 that we read earlier. Proverbs 7, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Well, she sounds delightful. We laugh, but that's what you believe, right? She's delightful. She'll actually keep these promises that she makes. But she'll ruin you. See her as God describes her. And you will learn to hate the sin. God's words are walls. Did you hear me telling children that earlier? Let me read you Solomon's advice in the beginning of Proverbs 7 that I just read a little bit from. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. God's words are walls of protection. And if you stack them up high in your heart, if you write them there, not in pencil, but as if they were etched in stone, they will protect you. Memorizing scripture isn't just a parlor trick for bragging rights. It is survival training. Storing up his commandments within you. Storing up his word. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. How? Train yourself to hate sin. How? Believe what God says about it is true. Mortifying sin isn't some monastic thing. You don't have to become a monk, get a weird haircut, and wear some drab, you know, burlap bag the rest of your life and cut yourself off from the world. Cowards do that. Cowards retreat and hide and then their sin follows them wherever they go because it's in here the goal is not just refraining from doing certain things the goal is a pure heart the goal is not the absence of desires y'all the goal is transformed desires the goal is not restraining ourselves from doing things we know we shouldn't the goal is never wanting to to begin with you see which means we have to examine our hearts and not just curb our behavior. We don't like examining our hearts, though. It makes us feel bad. We don't want to feel bad. We want to feel good. And it's easier to feel good and believe we've done well when we know we've only looked and not touched. Amen. When we see, 
when we come to a place and a realization where we begin to see what the Puritans called the plague of our own hearts, we begin to take sin more seriously. And you know what we do, y'all? We don't despair. We rejoice. It's always amusing to me to see how people, how they think of the Puritans, right? That they were these stuffy, boring Christians who were grumpy all the time and never had any fun. Got mad if you did have fun. If you think that, when you think of, of the Puritans, you got that from Scarlet Letter, okay? You didn't get that from the Sermon on the Mount. The Puritans weren't perfect, not by a long shot. But they were better at us at one thing. They were actually willing to dispense with whatever caused them to sin, like Jesus says here. And they weren't miserable for it. They rejoiced. Because that's what purity produces. Joy. Peace of conscience. Liberty. Satisfaction in the things that have been made for our satisfaction. Without apology or regret. A security and a confidence and assurance and an awareness that all the good stuff happens on this side of the fence. The only thing on the other side is death. We're not missing out on a thing this world has to offer. So what is left for us to lust after? Wrapping up, sin is subtle and it must be killed. Sinning in our imaginations and with our eyes is enough to land us in hell. Any enjoyment of what is not pure is adultery. If we knew just how black our hearts are and how subtle sin is, it would frighten us. If we could actually see ourselves as, as we are, it would frighten us. If we understood how much sin costs us in this life, like a, like a sinking ship, we would not hesitate to throw everything overboard, no matter how precious it was to us, right hands and right eyes included. And listen, if you're feeling a little unclean right now, a little convicted, that's a good thing. Honestly, y'all, I'd be worried about you if you didn't. You should feel like you need a shower. I... I you should want to be made clean. That's the point. You should want to be made clean. We talked about poverty of spirit at the beginning of this series on the series on the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that? We're not just going to try to skip over that step now, are we? That's poverty of spirit. Coming to the place where you say, man, I'm filthy. I, I can't believe I was so blind to it. I never saw it before. How, how, could I, how could I even tolerate myself? How could I stand myself and, and, and allow that to go on? How can God have anything to do with me? And there it is. There it is. Because Christ's body was broken for my sin. And he shed his own blood to cleanse me of it. And he declared, it is finished. It's not until you find out you need a new heart 
that you're given one. And if you have been given one, if you have confessed your sin before God and believed on the Lord Christ alone for your salvation, you're going to want to get in on this this morning. This is the rehearsal dinner for the wedding feast between Christ and his bride, the church. This is as close to heaven anyone can get on earth. Did you know that? This is the gospel we can hear and see and touch and smell and taste. This was made for you to desire and to enjoy. So take it all in. There, this, this table has reservations, though. Okay? This meal has reservations. If you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then please do not be tempted with, with the bread and with the wine this morning. Instead, sit where you are, talk to God. He's listening. He doesn't need you to, to believe he's listening for him to be listening. So if you're struggling with that, like where you are, do I believe this stuff or not? Maybe just sit quietly where you are this morning and, and, and pray. Ask him for understanding about what is admittedly a strange thing. This is a strange thing we do as Christians. We're the only ones that do this. What's it all about? Ask him. Ask for understanding. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation this morning and you, you've committed yourself to a particular group of people, another body, another church, a Bible-believing church, and placed yourself under, in submission under the authority of that particular church and committed to them, it doesn't have to be this one, right? Then this table is for you. This is for you this morning. So we'd invite you to come. The way we're going to do it is um, we're going to have... Uh, our elders dis dismiss you in, in large groups to come forward, gather around the table as a family, and, um, and, and partake of the bread and wine together. First, let me read you the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Father, I pray that as we do come to your table this morning, you would do what only you can do, that you would set aside these common elements for most peculiar use. As we need food and drink for our physical nourishment, you have given us this food and drink for our spiritual nourishment. Help us to realize the grace you intend to communicate to your saints through this holy sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen.